Morning. It's really good to be here this morning. Uh, welcome. My turn to welcome you, I guess. Uh, we've got a lot of guests with us today. And if you are a guest, if this is your first or second or third time, uh, we're really honored you're here. If this is someplace you were born into, uh, we're glad you're still here. Uh, Martha just leaned over to me and asked, are you preaching about joy today? I said, no. <laughs> But I am preaching about Jesus, so the answer is yes. But uh, I'll, I'll echo Ron's thoughts about uh, what a good day yesterday was. You know, all us men, we are having a little bit more joy today. So thanks to Don and Ben and Daryl and Paul somewhere uh, for putting that all together, Paul. Uh, it was a really encouraging day. Um, I always look forward to preaching on this Sunday, the Sunday that we get to fall back, you know, because usually at this time of the day, you're just starting to go to sleep, right? During my sermon. But this, right now, this week, you know, your body's telling you to wake up. So I know I've got a week or two where everybody's going to be a little bit more tuned in. So I'm excited about that. We are in a series where we are talking about some things that Jesus said. And we're also talking about some things that Jesus didn't say. This morning, I, I want to spend a little bit of time on a, a statement that Jesus absolutely did make. And it's one of the more controversial statements that Jesus made. It was controversial then. I think it's probably even more controversial today. So I'm going to encourage you. You have to sit up straight. You have to you know, pull your lap bar down. Keep your hands and your feet inside the pew at all times. Because we're going to move fairly quickly through this. But before I get there, I want to begin this morning with a story which is actually a joke. And regardless of whatever misinformation you might have heard from Dennis Crowell last week <laughs> about my jokes, this particular joke is hilarious, okay? <laughs> Just, I want you to be ready for it. <laughs> actually, it's not funny at all, hardly. And it's really old, but it does make a point that I want to kind of start my thoughts off with this morning. It's about two men, two brothers who lived in a fairly small town, and they were the richest two men in town, and they were also the meanest two men in town, and everybody knew it. I mean, they lied, they cheated, they, you know, they bought their way out of all kinds of problems. They were just really mean guys. One of the brothers passed away. So the other brother goes to the preacher there in town and says, Preacher, I want you to preach my brother's funeral, and I am prepared to give you $1 million for you and your church if you will say in your service that my brother was a saint. Now, what's the preacher going to do? He's you know, kind of in a dilemma. He doesn't want to sell out his, his dignity, but a million dollars. You know, do a lot of good work with a million dollars. So the whole town gathers for the funeral. And the preacher stands beside the casket and he says, everyone here knows that the man inside this casket was a low-down, dirty, no-good, rotten scoundrel. He lied, he cheated, he was just a really bad guy. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> Take that, Dennis. We live in a culture where nobody's wrong anymore. Uh, we live in a culture where, where we can't tell someone, we don't have the right to tell anyone that they're wrong about anything. 
Our young people are growing up today being told and being taught that there's no such thing as absolute right, but there's also no such thing as absolute wrong. They're being taught that, that morals are relative, and you really shouldn't judge anyone. One Christian writer claims that 30, 40 years ago, you could walk onto any college campus, and you could ask any college student what's the best-known passage in the Bible, and they would tell you John 3.16. But today, if you walked onto a college campus and asked what's the best-known Bible passage, they would probably tell you this passage, Matthew 7, verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Jesus said it. He said it in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. This morning, we're going to tackle that statement. And I'm going to tell you right now, that statement has the potential to upset a lot of people on either side of the judging issue. So I want you to listen very closely to what I'm going to say this morning. Because while I absolutely believe that Jesus did say that, I don't think he meant what a lot of people wished he meant when he made that statement. Because here's the reality. When Jesus made that statement, when Jesus says, do not judge there's no way he could have meant never make a moral discernment. There, there's no way he could have meant you never kind of discern what's moral, what's not. If that was his meaning, then he didn't follow his own advice. And neither did his disciples. You know, I, I've had people tell me, well, Jesus never judged anyone. What Bible are you reading? Well, time after time. Story after story, Jesus calls people out for their bad theology, for their poor attitudes, for their, for their unkind behavior, for their immoral actions. Jesus was not afraid to call certain attitudes and certain behavior sin. And he was not afraid to call sinners sinners. Jesus made judgment calls all the time. His disciples did the same thing. In fact, in the context of Matthew 7, where, where Jesus says, do not judge, just a few verses later, Jesus says, don't give holy things to unholy people. Don't throw your pearls before swine. You can't obey that commandment without making a judgment call. Then just a couple verses later, he tells us, beware of false teachers. You know, uh, measure their fruit. Study the fruit that they're teaching. You can't do that without making a judgment call. And the Bible is full of examples like that. And over and over again, the Bible talks about, um, uh, you know, stay away from this kind of behavior. Don't fellowship with people who are involved in, in this kind of thing. The Bible calls us over and over again to recognize evil, to name evil, to avoid evil. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah writes, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. The Bible says that it's wrong if you see something that's wrong and don't say that it's wrong. I don't know if you followed that or not, but when you see something that's wrong and you don't call it wrong, you're wrong. But more and more, especially in our culture, we're told that imposing any kind of moral standard on another person, that's what's wrong. Dr. Stephen Anderson is a philosophy uh, professor at a university in Canada, 
And he talks about teaching a philosophy class to a group of uh, philosophy seniors, 20, 21-year-old students. And in his class, he wanted to establish a moral baseline. So he told them a story that he knew would uh, cause a strong reaction. And it was a true story about a, a young girl named Asha, an Afghani teenager who was forced to marry a Taliban uh, soldier. This young girl was abused in every way possible. In fact, her husband locked her in a cage with his animals. She was able to escape one day. She, she got away from him, but he found her. He brought her back. And as punishment, he mutilated his young wife. He beat her mercilessly. And I don't want to be too graphic, but I want you to understand the gravity of what's going on here. He cut off her nose, and he cut off her ears, and he left her to die. She was found by some Americans and taken to an American hospital. And the professor showed a picture of this beautiful young girl, but terribly disfigured, to his students. And he wasn't ready for the response that those students had. Again, 20, 21-year-old philosophy majors. Let me read to you what he wrote in his article. I was going to try to paraphrase it, but his words are so much more powerful. Here's what he wrote. I had expected strong aversion, but that didn't happen. Instead, the students were confused. They seemed to not know what to think. They spoke nervously, afraid to make any moral judgment at all. They were unwilling to criticize any situation resulting from a different culture. They said, well, we might not like it, but over there, maybe that's acceptable. Another said, it's wrong for us to judge another culture that we don't understand. And I wondered, how could kids who had been so thoroughly basted in the language of minority rights be so numb to clear moral offense? But no matter how hard I prodded, they did not leave their non-judgmental position. And I left that class shaking my head. It seemed clear to me that for most of those students, the lesson of character education is acceptance of all things at all costs. It's evident that a good many of those students believe that the overriding message is that you never judge, you never criticize, you never take a position. Is that what Jesus meant when he said, do not judge? Now, there's a Christian philosopher, another man by the name of J.P. Moreland, who goes around to uh, college campuses and talks to people about their faith. And he wrote about being at a, a, the University of Vermont. And he was in a, a men's dorm, and he was talking to these young men about their faith. And someone told him what you hear very often, that's fine for you. That's fine for you Christians. But you can't impose your morality on us. It's not right for you, to, for you to impose upon us your sense of right and wrong. And Moreland said, okay. And he started to walk out of the dorm room, but then on his way out, he unplugged the kid's laptop, put it under his arm, and walked out the door. And the kid said, hey, wait a minute, you can't take that. And Moreland said, are you trying to impose your sense of morality on me? Are you trying to force on me your, your position of what's right and what's wrong? And his point was that we all have this very ambiguous view of what's right and wrong. You know, most people in our culture, if it doesn't affect them, they don't care. They don't care if someone else is being immoral. They don't care if someone cheats on a test, cheats on their taxes. 
No, they don't care if someone commits a crime as long as it doesn't affect them. But you take their things, you violate their rights, and they have a very strong sense of right and wrong. And his point was, we all make judgment calls all the time. And you know this is true. If you've ever had anything stolen from you, if you've ever had your car vandalized, if you've ever had your identity stolen, you have a very strong sense of whatever that person, whoever that person was, what they did was wrong. We make judgment calls all the time. And Jesus didn't forbid it. He's not forbidding judgment. He is demanding discernment. And that's where it gets tricky. Because judgment calls for the mind and the heart and the discernment of Jesus. Jesus was anti-sin, absolutely. And his practice of tolerance never included accepting people where they were without an expectation of them getting closer to the heart of God. You know, our society tells us we've got to be more tolerant. And we do. But we need to be sure that we're using the biblical definition of tolerance. Because Jesus was very intolerant when it came to tolerating sin. Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says this to the church at Thyatira. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality. Jesus is very anti-sin, but he is very pro-people. To the degree that you know, he's called a friend of sinners, which of course he was. And therein lies the tension. You know, we, we live with this tension. Because on one side, it's very easy to, to hate sin and be very condemning. And on the other side, you know, we're kind of called to you know, be non-judgmental. Just ignore sin. And so many people live in those extremes. But Jesus shows up full of grace and truth. Jesus shows up and models for us a much better way. And I guess the perfect illustration of that is John chapter 8. You know, we know that story in John chapter 8. The woman who is caught in the very act of adultery is brought before Jesus. And the men who bring her there ask Jesus, should we stone her? Because the law says we should stone her. And Jesus says, you're right, that's what the law does say. She should be stoned. And then Jesus tells them, and if you haven't broken the law, you probably ought to be the ones to start the stoning. And of course, they all walk away. And Jesus is left with this woman. And he asks, asks her, where are your accusers? And she tells Jesus they've left. Remember what Jesus said to her? Neither do I condemn you. Now, go and leave your life of sin. It is possible to judge without being condemning. It is possible to name sin and still be named a friend of sinners. So when we hear Jesus say, do not judge, we have to take that in light of all the other things that Jesus said. The other things that Jesus said about judging. Things that he did. For example, we need to hear it in the light of John chapter 7, verse 24. This is Jesus. Stop judging by mere appearances. In other words, don't judge so shallowly. Don't judge superficially. And make a right judgment. 
Jesus is saying, when, when you judge, you need to judge well. And again, that's where it gets difficult. That's where it gets kind of hard. Because like, like I said, it's easy to be someone who hates sin and we condemn everything. Or it's someone who, I'm not judgmental at all and I ignore sin. But the way of Jesus is to name sin and still be named a friend of sinners. And that's really tough. So how do we do that? And I'm not going to claim to have the answers, but I do have a few suggestions. Uh, first, if we're going to judge well, we need to stay with Scripture. You know, too many times we have a lot to say about things that the Bible doesn't really have a lot to say about. And when that happens, our, our, our judging is based more on cultural preferences than it is biblical principles. You know, we judge kind of, uh, kind of where, where we think th lines should lay, how things should be. We, we love that old saying, we speak where the Bible speaks and we're silent where the Bible's silent. It's a great saying, not in the Bible, but it's a great saying. But we don't believe it. Now, you've heard this before. We do speak where the Bible speaks. Where the Bible's silent, we speak so much more. <laughs> Personally, I have sort of landed, if the Bible doesn't talk about something authoritatively, then I'm not going to talk about it authoritatively either. But we do need to speak up when wrong, according to the Bible, is lifted up by the world as right. You've got stories all through Scripture. People like Nathan, who approach King David and say, it is wrong for you to have another man's wife. And people like John the Baptist, who approach Herod and say, according to the law, you're breaking God's law by taking your brother's wife. In fact, you got people like Paul who goes to the Apostle Peter and says, it's wrong for you to continue to create a, 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 a um, culture where, where racism exists in the church when you ignore fellowship with the Gentiles whenever the Jews are present. That's wrong. We live in a culture where people say, you can do whatever you want to do with your body as long as it, you know, it doesn't hurt someone else. But in the Word of God, there's absolutely no endorsement to any practice of, of sexual expression outside the bonds of marriage. And I'm not judging. I'm just telling you what the judge says. We live in a world that continues to endorse racism and sexism. But in the house of God, any behavior, any attitude that denies access to the kingdom because someone's of different sex or a different race, a different color, a different language, they come from a different country... That's wrong. Again, I'm not judging. I'm just telling you what the judge says. You know, as Christians, so many times we get labeled as being judgmental. And so many times we are. But sometimes we are just identifying behavior that the Bible says is wrong. Because regardless of what the world says, God's word stands true. And it really doesn't matter if we like it or not. It doesn't matter if we want to argue it or not. It doesn't matter if we agree or not. God's word stands true. And again, I'm not anybody's judge. I'm just trying to point people to the judge. And I suspect that right now, there are some of you who have been listening to what I've been saying, and you're very uncomfortable. 
And you would love five minutes of rebuttal. You're not going to get it just yet, okay? But you would like to raise your hand and say something. And I suspect there's some of you are like, right, that is so right, finally. Wherever you are right now, just sit tight, <laughs> okay? We've got a few more things to talk about. Because not only do we have to stay with Scripture, but if we're going to judge well, we've got to start with ourselves. There is no condemnation in Christ, but there is correction in Christ. And it begins with a humble, thorough self-assessment. And you go back to Jesus' statement, do not judge. That statement is made in the broader context of a sermon where he is constantly talking about and confronting religious hypocrisy. Matthew chapter 5, he says, you've never murdered anyone, but you've got hatred in your heart. And then he says, you, you say you've never committed adultery, but you've got lust in your heart. Then in Matthew 6, he says, um, you know, the way you pray, the way you give, the way you fast, you're doing it to draw attention to yourself. All through this sermon, Jesus is confronting religious hypocrisy. In fact, right after he says, don't judge, you know, we know he says, he says this in verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Here's the reality. As Christians, as people who profess to be following Jesus, we lose all credibility when we don't do the things that we preach. When we say one thing and do something else, we lose all credibility. And I'll tell you another old joke to make my point about the country preacher who one Sunday has his little congregation all fired up. And he says, if it were up to me, I'd take all the beer in the world and go dump it in the river. And they say, yes. And he says, if it were up to me, I'd take all the wine in the world and I'd go dump it in the river. And they say, preach it, brother. And he says, if it were up to me, I'd take all the whiskey in the world and I'd go dump it in the river. And they stand and say, amen, brother. And the preacher says, deacon, lead us in a song. And he stands up and leads, shall we gather at the river? <laughs> and that's the problem. That's the problem. We don't practice what we preach. Now, I want to be sure you hear me when I say this. Jesus is anti-sin. In fact, Jesus in this sermon talks about taking radical steps to deal with sin in your life. He says things like, if your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. If your eye is causing you to sin, pluck it out. Now, he's speaking figuratively, but he's trying to make a point. If there is sin in your life, you deal with it. You deal with sin that's in your life. But Jesus never called anyone to repent on behalf of someone else. You, know, you start with yourself. I start with myself. I hate my sin, which is consistent with Scripture. Peter says it's time for judgment to begin in God's household. 1 Peter chapter 4. Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? 
God will judge those outside. 1 Corinthians 5. Listen, I know you've heard me say this before, but don't be shocked when people who don't know Jesus don't act like Jesus. Don't be shocked when people who are, are sinners sin. That shouldn't shock us. What should shock us is when we tolerate ungodliness, when we tolerate sin within my own life, within our own family, all the while we're shouting over the fence at people who don't know Jesus because they're not acting like Jesus. We start with ourselves. Jesus said, get the plank out of your own eye. Because here's what I've found. The farther removed we are from identifying with the prodigal son the closer we get to identifying with the elder brother. And that's a problem. So if we're going to judge well, the last thing we have to do is stick with mercy. Can't really talk about judging other people without asking how you want to be judged, and Jesus does just that. Look at the very next verse in Matthew 7. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. We can't allow our anti-sin stance to trump our pro-people belief. And if the way that we name sin prevents us from being a friend to sinners, we're doing it wrong. Here's why. We need too much grace ourselves. James, the brother of Jesus, is going to echo of what Jesus is talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount when James writes this in chapter 2. So whenever you speak or whatever you do, remember that you'll be judged by the law of love, the law that sets you free. For there will be no mercy for you if you have not been merciful to others. But if you have been merciful, then God's mercy toward you will win out over his judgment against you. You ought to spend a little bit of time in that passage. It's a pretty convicting thing that James writes. James says that mercy is going to triumph over judgment. And it, again, it's that tension that we all live with. You know, we live with that tension of, of how, do we, how do we show love, but how do we name sin? My advice, when you're in doubt... Lean toward love. Lean toward Jesus. And by the way, that includes the way that we receive judgment as well. You know what David did after Nathan came to him and said, you can't have another man's wife? He repented of his sin. In fact, later on in life, David would name one of his sons after Nathan. We need to be grateful for the Nathans in our lives. We need to be thankful for people in our lives who love us enough to call us a friend and who love us enough to name our sin. And we need to especially be grateful that God didn't ignore our sin. You know, wouldn't it be so great if God was non-judgmental and if he just ignored our sin? You know, if that was God, we'd all be going to hell. But God is so anti-sin that he sent Jesus to die on a cross. And God is so pro-people 
that he allowed the judge to take our judgment. So yeah, we make judgment calls. But don't make them with a plank in your eye. Make them with a cross in your sights. Let's be judged for loving people the way Jesus loved people. Again, this is a really tough teaching. This is a really contentious subject. We live in a world that's in rebellion. We live, we live in a world that's, that's immoral. And we're told to recognize evil. And we're told to name evil. And we're told to avoid evil. But we're also told to love people the way Jesus loved people. And again, if I'm going to lean any direction, I'm going to lean into Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I want to be someone who's trying to be full of grace and full of truth. To be a real friend to sinners. To live not with a plank in my eye, but with a cross in my sights. And I know you do too. And it's hard. But as a church family, if we can help you in any way, or maybe there's something going on in your life that you just need the prayers of, of the people that love you, we would like to help with that. And if we can pray with you, pray for you, if we can help meet a need that you have, as always, we're going to ask you to come down to the front and let us know about it. We're going to go ahead and be standing, and uh, we'll sing.